Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, I am they, according to Daniel. I am Michael Van Wardhuizen, uh, one of the pastors of Redeemer Church for at least a few more hours, right? You can laugh, it's fine. <laughs> this is a good thing. This is a really good thing. I might cry, we, I might not, we'll find out. Uh, but I'm so glad to be here. Uh, I feel spoiled rotten that I get to, to go out in this way with Redeemer Church, preaching the Word of God and sharing uh, what he has been doing and showing me in Isaiah 44 and calling us to worship. That's it. It's just calling us to worship. Uh, this is our last Sunday at Redeemer. Uh, we, like Daniel said, we've been sending, kicking us out for like six months, maybe five years, maybe even longer. Um, and it's been a treat to be here. And it's been uh, the most life-changing season of my life. And so... Um, so whether you find yourself in the place that I find myself, or Allie, or our kids find themselves uh, in big transition and change, um, or where it causes my son Axel to be confused and to cry because he doesn't know why his house is empty now. <laughs> um, I don't know why my house is empty either. <laughs> um, or you find yourself in like the most normalized place, or you find yourself... Uh, fearful and, and scared and confused, or you find yourself elated with the glory of God, God has a message for us in Isaiah 44 this morning. And the first part of this message is fear not. God says, fear not. Fear not, my chosen. Fear not, my servant, Fear not my created ones. Fear not those whom I have helped. Fear not. Don't be afraid. For I will pour out my spirit upon you. Don't be afraid because I will overflow my spirit on you. You will be drenched. You will be soaked. I have so much to pour on you that it's lavished. You're going to be soaked. You're borderline going to drown in the Spirit. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Through Christ, I will pour my Spirit upon you, church. Chosen, servant, created, helped son and daughter. This matters so much. And it's all over scripture, but it matters so much because it points us back to the living God of the universe. The living God. Not just a deity, but the living God. It points us to the name, and the name matters. The name matters. It does. So, what's in a name? Who is God? Who is he? Like basic foundational question of all of humanity's existence. Is there a God and who is he or she? What are they like? But who is God? And if you look through scripture, you will see names of God all over the place. Name after name after name after name. One of, one of my favorite things that I've gotten to participate in recently is uh, 
in various formats, some of you have had the opportunity to do this as well. Britta, one of our worship leaders here, has led us through a simple time where we'll sit and ask God, highlight a name of yourself. God, give me one of the names you have for yourself and just highlight it for me right here, right now. Because there's a long, long list. Like we could call him Jehovah. We could call him infinite and omnipotent. He is good. He is love. He is shalom. He's immutable and transcendent. He's just. He's strong tower. He is a refuge. He is our shield. He is our strength. He is holy and self-sufficient. He's omniscient and he's omnipresent. He's merciful and he's sovereign. He's wise and faithful. He's steadfast. He is gracious and he's wrathful. He's our comforter, El Shaddai, the head, the intercessor, Adonai, Father. And we're just getting started on the names of God. But who is he? Who is God? Because this matters. It doesn't matter if he pours out his spirit if he's not the right guy. We'll just put it that way. Because this is about God pouring out his spirit, but who's doing the pouring? What kind of spirit is this? What is God's defining characteristic? Is it his kindness? Or is it his love? Is it his justice? Is it that he's our father? Is it that he's our friend? Is it that he's pro-life? Or that he's pro-traditional marriage? What is the name that scripture gives God? Yahweh. The Lord. Yahweh. If you go to Exodus 3, God and Moses are having an exchange, an interaction where God commands Moses to go to Egypt and bring his people out of captivity. And the exchange looks something like this. Exodus 3, 13 through 15 says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What should I say to them? What do I say? The God of your fathers has sent me to you. What do I say? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am who I am. I am who I am? What? Yahweh? I am who I am? I am who I am. What does that even mean? Talk about the most confusing answer I probably could have ever expected as Moses out of bush that does not get consumed by fire while it's on fire. See, now the Jews came to regard this word with such reverence that they would never take it upon their lips, right? Like, this is where Adonai comes from, which means my Lord. 
they didn't want to inadvertently take the name, the name in vain. So whenever they came to this name in their reading, they would say Adonai. It's used 6,825 times in the Old Testament. 6,825 times just in the Old Testament. Because God aims to be known as a, not as a generic deity, but as a specific person with a name that carries the unique character and mission that he has. His unique character and his unique mission. See, when God says, I am who I am, to the question, who are you? There are many things that this can mean, but here is a fast overview of a handful. What is God possibly saying when he says, I am who I am? Some divine implications. The first one is that God exists. God is there. He's just there. Francis Schaeffer, an old uh, apologist, wrote some books that are super dope and kind of confusing if you're a normal person like me. And one of them is the God who is there. He's there. So when God says, I am who I am, he's saying, I'm here. I'm there. I've been here. He's also saying, number two, no reality exists behind me. As Romans eleven thirty six says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Nothing is behind me. And thirdly, he says that I do not change. I am who I am. Fourthly, he says that I am an inexhaustible source of energy. Have you ever felt like that before? There's no way. There's no way. We're, we're packing our stuff last night and we're talking about how our kids are the classic Energizer bunny because they just keep going and going and going. Right? Good marketing. Uh, but, but eventually, they literally fall because they can't keep going anymore. God is not going to fall. He has an inexhaustible and is the inexhaustible source of energy. Number five is that he is he says that objectivity is crucial, meaning that he is not defined by our opinions of him. He is the source of the definition of who he is, not our opinions. He's saying, I am who I am. And lastly, he's saying that we must conform to him, not the other way around. Now this is an overview. This is fast. You could spend a sermon on each and every single one of those, but what God is saying is that he is unique. And when we talk about these names of God, what I hope you see is that the names of God are amazing, but they're amazing because God does not change. Because God is inexhaustible. Because He says, I am. That's why it's good that He's loving. That's why it's good that He pours out His Spirit. This is the name of our living God. Yahweh. So, what is your name? Right? Who are you? So let's take this really literally for just a moment. I don't get too deep into the whole name meanings thing, but we kind of do, uh, especially recently with having kids. 
but my name is Michael Van Wardhuizen. Now, I've been told that my name means Michael, Mikael, who is like El, who is like God. And I'm not sure if this is accurate, but that could mean maybe one of two ways, where it's like, question mark, who is like God? No one. But I, I also think that God likes to speak to me in this way of saying, in parentheses, he who is like God. Who is like God? That's what Michael means, okay? Who is like God? I'm compared I'm not God. It's like I'm like him in some ways, in a lot of contrasted ways. My last name means of the worthy house. This is what I was told. I've not done too much research on it, but of the worthy house. So I am who is like God of the worthy house. My son's name is Axel, and it means father of peace. Now, we named him after an Olympian super G skier from Norway. (laughs) And we're praying that he becomes a father of peace because he is not right now. Flora, flower, blooming. Francis, meaning free or a free man. Or a free woman, right? Free. One time our friend Elizabeth came to me and she said, when people are saying your name all day long, they're declaring over you who God has named you and they're saying, hey, who is like God? Hey, Father of Peace. Hey, free woman. So what's your name? Now, we're not going to get into this thing, and it's too parallel to numerology. We're not doing that today of, like, what's your name, and that's who you are. But God names us, just like he named Abraham after Abram, just from Abram, just like he named Sarai to Sarah, just like he named Jacob to Israel, because he had striven with God. He had wrestled with God He wants us to know who we are and who we are in relationship to Yahweh. So in verse 1 and 2, we see Isaiah, God, say, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. He names his people as a reminder of who they are and their relationship to Yahweh. But what do we call ourselves? How do we refer to ourselves all the day long? And I think we go in phases. We go in phases, right? Like Daniel was talking about, you wake up, and we wake up in very, very many, a variety of places every single morning. But what do you call yourself? What are you called? What name do you go by, so to speak? And, and so, like, as an example, like, think about nicknames, right? They come and go. They change. Uh, if you ask, like, Dirk, or uh, a few others in this room, I've gone through a variety of nicknames over the course of the years. Most of them are, I don't want to tell you what they were. But they're anything from like, in middle school, I was known as V because I was one of two Michaels and there was a Michael V and a Michael H. So I was Michael V, V. And at some point I was known as Van Woo or Van Wootsenfitsen because people can't say my last name. There were very many other ones. 
all the way to I'm headed to Denver, and they already have a nickname for me. They literally just call me V-Dub. That's it. V-Dub, and they spell it out V-D-U-B. I have emails with this already. But it's nicknames. They come and go. They change. They don't stay the same. Why is that? Well, similarly as nicknames and what you're known as, or what you're, uh, yeah, what you're known as, what you're known for can come and go. What you're known for. So I've also had many phases in this. So to other people, other people, I've had a variety of phases of what I've been known for. Maybe you're the new guy or the new girl. For me, at one point, when I was the new guy, I was also the guy who had a mullet that went down to my shoulder blades and a mustache and carried a Spider-Man backpack riding a longboard on campus to get attention. I do, yes, that is exactly why I did it. I wanted new friends. I got new friends, and that's why I'm here today. Praise God for mullets. <laughs> I was known for this. Like, I was, I literally, okay, side story. I literally had people stop me on campus and ask to take a picture with me. Like, I was like the mascot of you and I for about six months like 10 years ago. So I was that guy. Well, then I became a gutter installer, and I worked construction in the Cedar Valley. And then I was the bearded guy, you know, long beard. I I love attention, evidently. And then I became a youth pastor. And now I'm a church planter, what I'm known for. Like when I go to Denver, people are like, oh, you're a church planter. Oh, cool. How do you, how I introduce myself? Oh, I'm planting a church in the city. Where? Capitol Hill. Oh, cool. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, so what I'm known for, but that's to others. Now to myself, this is, this is really important. Like what do you know yourself as? Who do you say you are? What are you known for in your own mind, in your own heart and soul? In the past, I've been a Bible nerd. I've been faithful and kind. I've been even humble, probably not. But I've also been a control freak. I've also called myself an angry man. I've also been ashamed. I've been lustful and arrogant. I've been an addict and a user. I've been a youth pastor and a church planter. I put those in that order because those things have become a problem. Being a youth pastor and being a church planter, is that who I really am? Is that what God calls me? In the quiet. But see, even these things change. They get stale. They get old. They dry up. They don't last because they can't last. Because we change. The things around us change. They can be taken away. Like you cut my mullet off and I'm no longer the mullet guy. You cut my beard off, I'm no longer the beard guy. And who am I? Now, I did those by choice, which is a control freak thing, right? So you're going to say, but who are you when these things are taken away? They're not who you really are. That's what I'm trying to say. How do you define yourself? What are you known for? If it's anything like what I've already listed, it's just not who you are. It's a misdefinition of your identity. So in our passage, God says very plainly, fear not. Well, why does he say that? 
Because God knows who we are. He knows two parts of this. And the first part of this is he knows that we have need. That we are a thirsty land and that we are dry ground. And that's a recipe for death. That's a recipe for desolation. Now how did that happen? How did this how did this happen to Israel and to us, whether you know it or not? We're thirsty ground. We're dry ground. We're thirsty land. And if you go to Isaiah 43, right before our passage this morning, he says in 43, 27 through 28, he says this. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. God says there's something wrong here, and it's worthy of destruction. It's worthy of reviling. So what happened here is that Israel was once known as chosen, beloved servant. And they go to Yahweh and they say, you are our God. You are, I am who I am. We love you. We praise you. We pour out our praise. We offer sacrifices to you so we can be with you. And you know what God does is he delivers them. And he brings them into the promised land like he said. And they get there, and it's like, this is great. And then you know what happened? They're like, we did this. They start becoming somebody else. Instead of being known as Israel, the ones who have wrestled with God, they become Israel, a fortified city, a people of power and wealth, winner of battles, the underdog. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're always the underdog. Always the underdog. And that will do something to your ego. It will do something to your pride. They became Israel, the great and terrible. Is that who they are? And this led them and leads us to miss out on who Yahweh really is because no longer was he their deliverer, but their king was. Or maybe Egypt or whatever superpower was present at the time. And because of this, God is renamed by us. See, the created order is when God says, I am, therefore you are. When God spoke everything into existence and when God calls us to himself, he says, I am, therefore you are. But what happens in disorder and in sin in our hearts and manifests itself in sins with our hands is we say, no, 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 God, I am, therefore you are. We flip it. It's that simple. It's that simple. We say, I am, therefore you are. Therefore, God, you are distant. You are unjust. You are actually evil. You're malicious. Or you're just lame. Or maybe we say that I am, therefore You are not God. You are not good. You're not loving. You're not kind or faithful or steadfast. 
And so what happens in us specifically, and I think for us specifically as Cedar Valley Christians, Cedar Falls Redeemer Church, is that we misdefine Yahweh in a particular way by saying that he's not timely. He's late all the time. Where is he? Why aren't you here yet? Why didn't you answer the prayer that I prayed last week or last year? Why did it take five years? Where are you? I know that's my tendency. He's, he's late. I know you're there somewhere, but where? Is that yours? Is that how you find yourself reacting and redefining who God is? Not that I am, but that I might be. We get this confused. But what we see in Scripture is Malachi 3, 6 through 12 says this. There's multiple pieces here. And he says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So we don't believe that God won't change. It's just simple as that. We think that he's going to flip on us. He's going to flip-flop. He's going to change his mind and he's going to say, never mind. You're not worth it. We think he will withhold from us as we withhold from him. We withhold our praise and our worship, this passage is saying. He says, bring the full tithes and contribution. Why? Is it because he's hungry and poor? No, because he wants us to say, you can have it all. Take everything because if I give it all to you, then I have nothing left and then I can wait on you to open the heavens to pour out your blessing and know who you are by what you have done and who you have said you are. Not by what I make of myself or take for myself. But that's horrifying. So instead, we withhold We keep, we plunder, we become dragons on piles of gold and say, get away, this is mine. 
But we still are finding ourselves fearful, unfulfilled, and floundering in life, even when we do this, because we find ourselves in this feedback loop of what if, what if, what if, and it actually just gets deeper when we find ourselves sitting with more. And I don't just mean money or physical possessions, but like more control, more power, more defining characteristics of who we are determined by ourselves. It's a picture that has come up is that it's like a measuring stick that we hold out to keep ourselves at distance from others and from God. Like this gift, these things that we have are a measuring stick that we say, no closer than this. We become uncertain about who we really are. And we long for something greater and we become aimless in our pursuits. We flip-flop. We flip-flop. The simplest way that I've seen this happen is in my relationship with Allie when we were dating. I straight up smothered that girl nearly to death because I couldn't figure out who I was apart from her. And so I was bound and determined to do whatever it took to make sure that she didn't go anywhere. And it actually really harmed our relationship the whole time we were dating and even in marriage. And God is redeeming and has redeemed that. But it nearly killed her and our relationship and me. Because I was putting my hope in her and I was saying, I am because you are. (laughs) I am because you are. And then it's funneled into this cycle of fear and unfulfillment and floundering in life. I was a thirsty land. I was dry ground and I was drinking up whatever I could come up with, whatever I could find. But God still says, fear not. Why? And it's because he says, I am. He says in the beginning of our passage in Malachi, he says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O Jacob, Children of Jacob are not consumed. And in our passage in Isaiah, he says, right after he says, I will deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling, he says, but now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Fear not. Is God changing his mind? Is he flippant? Is he childish? No, he's saying this is your station and where your heart is and what it deserves. But I say, fear not, because I will pour out upon you exactly what you need. I will pour out on you exactly what you need. I will send my spirit and pour it upon you. So the question for us is, are you thirsty? Are you dry ground? receptive to the waters of the Spirit, the waters of life? Do you want to be satisfied? Do you want the search for meaning to be over so you can begin the real adventure? Because like literally, people, who, when we don't know Jesus, we're on this quest, right? Like some of us are optimistic and others are like dying inside because we're like, what is the purpose of life? Why am I here? Sometimes it feels like the most exciting adventure But I think the ones who are dying inside while doing that and know it are closer to reality because the quest for meaning is like a quest for water in a desert. It's purely survival. You're literally just like, I just need something, just a drip to keep me going. But what Jesus is saying is, 
I am the source of life. I am the living water. I have so much to pour out upon you that you will never thirst again. And then we can really get into this together. Then we can really work together. Then we can really go on this journey, this adventure together. Because the real adventure is when we've found him and set off on transforming and terraforming the world with the Edenic presence of God as temples of the Holy Spirit. Because what Jesus has done is he has come as God our salvation. He has come as the anointed one. He has come as the name that changes everything, as the name above any other name. John says this in John 8, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's getting in their faces and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am identifying himself with Yahweh. And in Philippians 2.10, Jesus is in replacement of the very name of Yahweh. It's an echo of Isaiah 45, but in Philippians 2, when he quotes that text, Paul puts Jesus' name in there and he says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. The Old Testament says that the Every knee is going to bow at Yahweh. So boldly, Paul says that Jesus is Yahweh. And that whatever was true of that name is now true of the name of Jesus. Jesus is I am who I am. See, the name of Jesus goes hand in hand with the fame of Jesus. And what is his fame? It's him on a cross. It's why we put a cross up here. It's not because it's a decoration, but because it's the display of the name of the living God in love and mercy, but the love and mercy only matter if he is the I am who I am. And Jesus comes and he pours out his blood for us, soaking the ground of our hearts, preparing the way for the Spirit so we might actually be receptive to the love, to the waters of life. See, Jesus comes and he shows up as the God-man and he says, no, 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 no. I am, so you can be. He says, I am. Now rest. Be at peace. Fear not, so you can be. Now you are. And when he comes and he says this, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection from the grave, He brings the Spirit. He brings the Spirit of God. He brings this flood with his death. In John 16, he says this. This is still one of the most confounding passages to me sometimes. John 16, 7 through 11 says this. It is to your advantage that I go away. And I still don't believe that. But I just want to meet him. I just want to like have him stand right there. I can be like, what's up? But he says it's to our advantage that he goes away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. 
Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now the simple reality of what this is getting at is Jesus says, I must go so I can send the helper so you can be changed. You can be changed by the Spirit and you can realize sin, righteousness, and judgment. That we can be changed to be fearless, fulfilled, and flourishing. We can be fearless, fulfilled, and flourishing. Now it's funny because we're not fearless because the the, the the, what is, how does he put it? Because of the ruler of this world is judged. I would argue that's not why we're fearless. We're fearless because Jesus has paid our debt on the cross and no longer do we have to be saying, God, I'm, I'm sinful and I don't know what, what to do about it because you're not. You are holy. And I'm afraid that if I come anywhere near you, you're gonna obliterate me because of the darkness and you are light. But he says, you do not have to be afraid because I have changed you. I've poured my spirit on you and made you light. There's hope. And then he says we can be fulfilled that we can no longer be just searching for meaning anymore because we have Christ's righteousness. No longer is it like, man, okay, how good of a dad was I today? Did I actually talk to my kids as if they're humans? Did I actually get the work done that I was supposed to? Oh man, I cut that guy off in traffic and then I flipped him the bird, so man, I'm really not doing good today. And we feel unfulfilled because it was rough. Or because our jobs are horrible. Or because COVID. But Jesus says, I came, I am, so you can be fulfilled. In me, in my righteousness, he went to the Father on our behalf and then sent his spirit to us. And then he says, you can flourish because the ruler of this earth is judged and you're no longer bound to that. You're set free from that. From him, from the lies that he tells you. That he's whispering in your ear. From the lies that he's telling you through your peers and through everything, every voice in this world that's not sent from God. It's not a voice that's powered by the Spirit. He says you're no longer bound to that, so no longer are you floundering, but you can flourish here and now. Flourishing. And that looks like being free and living a life of love and overflowing and blessing. It's an overflow. It's an overflow. It's not, it's not an, a, an impoverished mentality, but it's an abundance mentality. It's not a COVID-19 pandemic life where we live masked up, socially distanced, but instead we rip the mask off and we get in the faces of those who are near to us and we say, have you met the I am who I am? And we risk spitting all over them, the Spirit of God. Like, really. We get close enough that we might lose social collateral and social relationship. We might socially be persecuted, but it's worth it if they might come to know Jesus and know the hope, the fearlessness, the fulfillment, and the flourishing that's possible in Jesus and knowing the I am. It's worth it. This is what flourishing for us looks like. It's joining in in the mission of God. 
It's joining in in the work of God. That's, that is why God gave us his spirit now. It's to join with him in all of the things that he is doing and to know it. Because what this passage says is one angle. He says, this one will say, this person will say, I am the Lord's. So when Jesus gives us his spirit, we're actually saying, hey, I am the Lord's. Did you know that I am the Lord's? Like, we can know that. It's not just God saying, I've got a secret and that one's mine. It's like, no, I know it. I am the Lord's. And I'm going to tell you about it. And this is not just evangelism. I'm not just using this for an evangelism, like in like literally sharing the gospel with just your words, but I'm talking about how do you sit alone in your room? How do you go to your group? How do you do your Zoom calls? How do you do normal things in life? And do you know that you can say, I am the Lord's? Out loud and in the quiet, I am the Lord's. And then they say, I, another will ride on his hand, the Lord's. He's like, look at this, I'm the Lord's. And they will name, another will name himself by the name of Israel. See, God has already named you this. He already says, you are mine. But what the Spirit of God, one of the things the Spirit of God does is he says, wake up! Now you know it. So let's go. Let's go. Let's go do this. Let's go do this together. So, because when God, when we receive God's Spirit, we are saturated with His I amness. Like we got Jesus all over us, right? We can conform to Him because He is faithful, because He is patient, because He is who He is. So, I want to invite the response team up. And, and we're going to respond. And my prayer is that our response would be just asking the Holy Spirit, who do you say I am? Who am I? Holy Spirit, speak to me. Flood me with the knowledge of the word of God. Flood me with the knowledge of who you are. Flood me with the knowledge of who you say that I am and that we would walk out of this room different than when we walked in. We won't leave the same way we came in because the living God says to you, you are mine. And I hope that you know it. You are mine and I hope that you know it. So let's pray and, and take your time. Take your time and ask him, who do you say that I am? And then come and take, well, sit and take communion. If you need the cups, they're in the hallway. Take communion and say, this, you have made a way for me by shedding your blood, by seeing your flesh slain for me. And after the service, come and pray and pray in praise of God declaring over you who you are but also come and pray and ask with the body, together, joining together, ask him, who am I? With the prayer team in the hallway. Let's do this together as the body, joined by the Spirit to the head, which is Christ. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you pour out your Spirit. Yet again, it does not matter 
unless you are. God, when we feel afraid and we feel lost, when we feel confused and unfulfilled, like we have no purpose, when we cry out to you, God, I am not. God, you whisper in our ears and you say, no, but I am. I am. So as the I am, tell us who we are. Tell us who we are, Father. Amen. Thank you, Redeemer Church. See you later.